Welcome to The Weather Pod, a podcast about the growing importance of weather information to business and society. I'm Alan Thorpe. I'm a former Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, a former head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and a Professor of Meteorology. And I'm David Rogers. I'm a former Chief Executive of the UK Met Office and am now a consultant with the World Bank, helping countries improve their weather related disaster management systems and services. Weather information is a critical international resource for saving lives, making business and society more efficient and building resilience to extreme weather and climate change. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss how public, private and academic sectors work together to produce weather information and make it available to business and society. We also investigate how weather-affected public and private enterprises actually use it and the new business opportunities being created. And because extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest, we'll look beyond the rich countries to the less developed ones, which host most of the world's population. Well, now it's time for Wow, That's Interesting. Wow! So, David, what have you got for us this episode? It's very interesting that at this time there are several, even many, high-level national and international initiatives regarding the issue of open data. And in particular, there are a set of developments all occurring now regarding open meteorological data. I think that these have the potential to have a significant impact on how weather and climate information are shared and used across the world. People have been talking about big data and open data for some time. But tell us more about which initiatives you've spotted that are going on right now that will impact the weather enterprise in particular. At the international level, the World Bank issues an annual World Development Report and the 2021 edition focuses on data for better lives. It will look at the potential of data to change the lives of poor people, not least because, as we know, much of the value of weather and climate data is untapped, waiting to be realised. On the WeatherPod, we've previously mentioned that the World Bank Global Facility for Disaster Reduction and Recovery has issued a report called The Power of Partnership. A key finding of that report is that the adoption of national data policies that support the free, unrestricted use and reuse of data would have a significant economic benefit and would increase opportunities to expand and strengthen public and private sector meteorological services. I guess that it's worth underlining that open access to public weather data such as predictions from global and regional models provided by public organisations, has another major role in enabling companies to create tailored products for a range of specified users. Indeed, and there are opportunities for those weather businesses to provide vital information, including in developing countries. Coming back to the issues around open public data itself, are there other open data initiatives and developments that you could highlight that are active at the moment? The World Meteorological Organization is currently in the process of updating and revising its Resolution 40, in which countries are required to follow guidelines on public weather data sharing and exchange. ECMWF has recently announced that it's on a path to make much more, maybe even all of its forecast data, open and free at the point of use. And recently Gerhard Adrian, president of the German Weather Service and of WMO, gave an excellent online presentation called Unlocking the Benefits of Open Weather Data. Yes, I was a participant in Gerhard Adrian's webinar. He talked about the new European Union Directive on Open Data and the reuse of public sector information. Also, that directive categorises meteorological data as being of high value, vital for the socio-economic well-being of its citizens. He mentioned that there needs to be a clear definition of the public tasks of national MET services, 
and the public data associated with the provision of those tasks. It was a fascinating discussion about open data. Professor Adrian stressed that for National Meteorological Services, much of this hinges on having the appropriate legislation that sets out the role of the Public Weather Service and that creates a transparent interface between public and private sector service providers. Across the world, there are clear examples of this already happening, like in the USA and countries where recent uh, transitions in this direction have taken place, like Japan and, of course, Germany. Of course, there is a significant caveat. This only works if the public task is fully financed by the government. Apparently, now the German Weather Service has transitioned to open data, 500 petabytes of meteorological data in 2 billion files were downloaded in just one month in September 2020 via their anonymous FTP site. But I wonder how this issue plays out in developing countries. I think that there is a need to convince developing countries that maximum social welfare is achieved by sharing government data, including meteorological data, rather than sharing in the profits generated by data reuse. Uh, Several developing countries are currently actively discussing this very point. It seems that the EU is obviously convinced, and as you say, Alan, Gerhard indicated that DWD's data, both observations and products related to its public task, are being accessed and used freely by many sectors, including energy, logistics, mobility and insurance companies, with direct benefit to the national economy. As Gerhard also mentioned, the persuasive voice and actions of the World Bank can be used to engage governments at the appropriate level to help them transition into digital economies including unlocking the benefits of meteorological data. Gerhard Adrian's full presentation is available to watch on the GWE Forum website. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. In this episode of WeatherPod, we've invited Peter Lennox into the studio to discuss the operation of a National Meteorological Service as a commercial enterprise. Peter, from Belfast, Northern Ireland, is uniquely qualified to talk on this topic. From 2011 to 2020, he was the chief executive of the New Zealand Meteorological Service, which was established as a state-owned enterprise company on the 1st of July 1992. This came about mainly as a result of pressures also being faced by an increasing number of national meteorological services, Chiefly, the pressure to earn money on their activities rather than rely entirely on taxpayer funding. But does such a change in status from a straightforward public service to a commercial enterprise charged with earning money on its services pose any problems or contradictions? For example, is the requirement to issue public weather warnings or to provide national security support compromised as a result? So these are some of the issues that we hope to discuss with Peter. So, Peter Lennox. Peter, welcome to the WeatherPod. Hi, Peter. I'd like to start the conversation by asking you what led the New Zealand government to the decision to turn the National Weather Service into the state-owned commercial enterprise Met Service in 1992. You, you have to remember that New Zealand is a small country and it's uh, really at the end of the world. And Uh, with 4 million or so taxpayers at that stage, or 3 million it would have been then, uh, it was a very low uh, base for um, protecting the uh, well-being of New Zealanders. And every uh, dollar and cent was important to the New Zealand government. So they were very creative in ways in which they could preserve public spending and look at ways of using the public sector to create uh, extra revenue 
and also then be able to put back into the uh, government uh, agencies uh, dividends that accrued from that. So it's real fiscal uh, mechanism by which the country um, with a small tax base could survive. You also have to remember that um, there's no other uh, country that, that New Zealand can depend on. So for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland or, or Scotland is part of the United Kingdom. And until recently, that was part of the European Union. So there were uh, opportunities uh, for fiscal support if the economy went belly up. There's no such um, safety net for New Zealand. So it's a country by which um, the uh, future of its wealth uh, has to be thought out very, very carefully in doing things in different ways. And uh, it's led to what's called a, a, a eight war um, mentality. And, and that is about using uh, all types of things to help uh, create new things. And especially, uh, you know, it war was a, a war that's used to connect things together. And that's what New Zealand is good at. It's taking elements of, uh, of something and applying it to something else in a way that's very, very efficient. So it's all about uh, fiscal policy. And um, the state-owned enterprise uh, act came into being in uh, the late 80s. We were the second wave of government um, ministries or agencies that uh, became state-owned enterprises. And um, that meant that we were commercial entities run as commercial companies with a usually a private sector board appointed by the government under what was called the State-Owned Enterprise Act, which meant that uh, the state-owned enterprise itself was guaranteed that it wouldn't be undercut by the government for providing government services. So the government would uh, be buying from the state-owned enterprise at the same price that they would get from the private sector. So that was good in the beginning, but of course, as the private sector uh, uh, becomes more competitive, then the cost of um, supplying those uh, services to the government drops because uh, the private sector tries to undercut you. So the, it's a two-way street. So it's a fiscal policy. So, Peter, that, that's very interesting. It, is, would it be correct then to say that the Met Service in New Zealand is a private company? And, and if so, how, how is it actually governed? I, so, so that's a very emotive sentence, and it's a, a private company. It's a commercial company with shares like any other company. It's just that the uh, New Zealand government own all the shares. So if you look at... Um, I'm not sure if it's still the same with the Royal Bank of Scotland or all the shares owned by the uh, UK government. And, you know, is that thought of as a private company? So it's it's set up that it could be a private company in the future if the government sold off the majority of its shares. And in fact, that's happened with a lot of state-owned enterprises. So in the first tranche of companies, which were banks and electricity companies as well, most of them are now um, truly private companies. Um, companies like ourselves, which are seen to be part of the important infrastructure for New Zealand and crucial for the security of the country, haven't had their uh, shares sold off. And in some instances, like our New Zealand, uh, which was the state airline, 
um, until quite recently, I think it was 51% of the shares were owned by the government. So 49 were uh, traded on the stock exchange. So uh, the word private is an emotive word and it's hard to describe the company as private, but certainly as commercial with shares that are owned by the government. So the, the way it's governed is via a board, and I think you've, you've called it an independent board. Um, and I wonder, I just wonder what that actually means. I wonder, for example, does the government have any say or control on the strategy for the organisation or even on its operational decisions? Again, um, yes, it does. Uh, so the uh, government ultimately um, appoints the board, the chair and the board. Um, the uh, government also, uh, through Treasury, uh, issues uh, expectations on the state-owned enterprise. And Treasury are very hard taskmasters because we have to uh, be profitable and provide a dividend at a certain level back to the crime. Um, however, in the running the company itself, uh, the directors are independent. It's... Um, only uh, in, in dire matters where the, would the government step in uh, to take charge of the company if, um, uh, if certain things uh, didn't uh, turn out as, as planned. So they don't interfere with the day-to-day -day running of the company or even the strategy of the company, but they keep an eye on the uh, fiscal returns from the company. And if they're not happy with that, they will ask uh, questions of management and of the board. And in some instances, if that's too extreme, they will uh, replace uh, members of the board or the board itself. So, so, Peter, tell us something about what attracted you to the role of chief executive of MetService. Well, MetService had a, a great reputation um, and still does. Uh, it, um, it gave me the opportunity to bring some of my skills, my scientific skills, which are really in the biological side, biochemistry side, medical side, uh, not in the meteorological side, uh, but it allowed me to express my, my love for science in a certain way. But they're also looking for someone who had governmental experience and had worked in many countries around the world and was able to um, determine uh, how you could work closely with government officials in various uh, governments and how to write cabinet papers and how to get funding from certain parts of government. And that's uh, uh, through experience. And generally what I find that governments around the world are, are very, very similar. And the uh, boffins that work for them are very similar as well. So, um, but having that experience in uh, what was happening in different countries and different policies and the way that technology was promoted and uh, IP created gave me uh, a great deal of experience in what I was going to do in New Zealand. And the third thing was uh, my commercial background. And um, the uh, then board felt that uh, because of my commercial experience and putting deals together, my government experience and um, my scientific love for science, that that's what they were looking for, for the commercial side and the scientific side and balancing the commercial with the scientific side of med service. So it's reputation. And then the more I looked at the company, the more uh, opportunities I saw to be able to um, work 
in developing the company down uh, different um, uh, lines of business and to um, make it a much more relevant company, not only for New Zealand, but worldwide terms as well. So there are fantastic opportunities there for me to express myself. The other thing that I learned after a short period of time was that the weather community is something that's really, really special. And the meteorologists, the computer scientists, the mathematicians, the oceanographers uh, had on infinitum are fantastic community. And there's this great social good heart to the community, which I find very appealing. What were your biggest challenges? At the beginning, it was gaining the trust of our meteorologists and other scientists that um, I wasn't going to take the company down a route that um, let it dry in the sense that everything was about commercial success. It was um, showing our employees and our scientific employees that I too felt that the uh, benefits that came from meteorology um, were there to help not only the people of New Zealand, but those worldwide. So that I had a uh, this this social good core to me. However, um, I had to make it clear to them that for the company to survive and to um, have money to invest in exciting new things, we had to be commercially viable and successful. So that balance was was there. So that was the big challenge: was to get the staff on board that um, we had to. Uh, look at doing two things. One was the social good and the benefits of uh, meteorology, but also that we had to turn a profit to uh, keep our political masters um, satisfied. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Peter, could we just turn to a a slightly different topic? It's sometimes said that a national weather service has to be a public body because of the requirement to issue public weather warnings and to provide national security support. So I wonder how do these aspects work in New Zealand? So uh, I talked about the State Owned Enterprise Act, which created the um, uh, Met Service. There's another act that um, we're very much uh, a part of, and that is the Meteorological Act of New Zealand. And the Meteorological Act of New Zealand uh, stipulates the um, public services that are required uh, with regards to meteorology. So we talk about watches and warnings. We talk about security issues um, uh, that are relevant for uh, New Zealand government. And the Meteorological Act um, states that the Ministry of Transport uh, can uh, delegate and contract a company Uh, to deliver those services. So through the Meteorological Act, uh, MetService has that contract to deliver that whole spectrum of safety um, uh, uh, services that are required by uh, governments to uh, keep their um, their population uh, safe. So Peter, would it it be fair to say that you, you don't really see any difficulties in a, in a um, state-owned enterprise delivering public services, um, really including those that, that impact national security, in fact? Uh, not in New Zealand. And uh, this is something that I 
press onto lots of people. So um, it's a really good model for New Zealand, uh, the way that we have set it up. But um, different countries have different political systems, uh, have uh, you know, different needs and um, uh, different organizations that are involved, larger private sectors, um, I said larger populations. So it depends on the particular country and the circumstances around that. So for New Zealand, there's not an issue, but for many other countries, uh, there could be not. That could be from political stability. It could be to um, the uh, transparency index that's run, I think, by the World Bank and, and by others. Um, that's the level of corruption. So there are many uh, factors that uh, can impact upon the efficiency of a model. Uh, for us, it works well, but I'm, I'm at pains to point out to lots of people that it is not a panacea for all uh, countries around the world to have a model that's like uh, New Zealand's Met Service. So, as a state-owned enterprise, do, does Met Service fulfil uh, its role as a single authoritative voice, as many public national Met Services claim they do? Uh, it certainly does, as compared to the best in the world. Uh, however, you've got a, um, a a different dynamic now, even from ten years ago, and that's the rise of social media. And with social media, you've got uh, many experts that can portray themselves as um, uh, as leaders in um, uh, providing meteorological information. And they're very, very good at marketing that. And also there's a lot of, um, I won't say, I'll say false news. I don't want to copy anybody else there. And um, you know, we as human beings, like to latch on to things and if there's something that's exciting or different we pay attention to it and a lot of the other weather providers out there like to build up things and in a sense it's it's akin to to get more clicks on their website or to get their apps downloaded or in many cases to generate advertising revenue so there's a lot of pressure out there and a lot of competition because um, getting a weather message across is, is uh, straightforward. It's the accuracy or precision around that that differentiates one from another. So the government recognise us as the authoritative voice. I would say that with our reputation in New Zealand, uh, the vast majority of the public uh, do that as well. But as anywhere else, you've got an underbelly, especially in social media, that anything that's connected with the government uh, can't be telling the truth. And on many occasions, they may try to, try to proliferate uh, information that isn't quite accurate, but it gets them uh, the clicks on their website or apps. So uh, I wanted just to follow up on that a bit, Peter, because thinking about this from the point of view of of private weather companies in New Zealand, um, you know, other other enterprises that are dealing with weather services and weather data. I'm curious as to whether they feel uh, that there's a level playing field so that they uh, can compete fairly with, with Met Service. Um, I think if you were to ask them, they would say it's not. Uh, they feel that um, we're a government-owned organisation 
and any information that is generated by a government-owned organization should be uh, freely available for um, others to use. And uh, philosophically, um, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, commercially, I do, because uh, when I was running MedService, um, it was stipulated in the, the law of the land, and the way that this, the company was set up as a state-owned enterprise, that uh, we should be making a profit from uh, the things that, that we develop. And there's many ways that you can cut that, but with uh, MedService, it was made quite clear to us that the infrastructure that we have, the radars, the automized weather stations were our equipment, uh, so much so that on our um, balance sheets, they uh, were written down each uh, each year and depreciated each year. And, you know, that uh, impacted upon our profits. But but I guess um, if we think about the, the data and services side, then you as a state-owned enterprise have to charge for, for data. So it, in a sense, it, it cuts across the the usual open data concept of, uh, you know, that leads to data access and sharing uh, across the public, private and academic sectors. Yeah, it's an interesting concept and where you draw the line. At the end of the day, somebody has to pay for uh, the infrastructure and the, and the work that's done uh, to create that data. And um, in, in many different places, the line's drawn in, in, uh, in different ways. So, yeah, I... I don't have a problem with that. It's just the system that um, uh, New Zealand uh, put in place uh, so that it could um, survive fiscally. Do, do you feel that that hurts or helps um, the, the overall value of weather services? And, and the question is whether if there was more sharing of data and there were more weather companies providing services, bespoke services, there would be an overall benefit to government? Or uh, is, as you said earlier, is it New Zealand's sort of too small to really um, have such a broad market base? Yeah, it, it's as you say, and I think it's the latter. Um, it would be wonderful if, it, uh, if we were a larger con- uh, uh, country with um, um, many more private sector uh, providers. Um, it's just not like that in New Zealand at the moment. So what, what's best for it? The, the other thing is that um, there are many benefits from this for New Zealand as well. So um, by having a, a commercial entity that um, is able to um, create, uh, uh, distribute data and turn that information into intelligence, uh, we've got lots of commercial contracts, not only in New Zealand, but around the world. And what that does is that drives innovation. So in MedService, um, there were quite a number of commercially oriented people there that got to know what the customer wanted or required in the future. And therefore, we were able to develop services uh, that uh, met the custom- not only the customer's needs, but their future their future needs and there's many examples in med service of it being uh, really the, the pioneer of new ideas and new applications of um, meteorological um, uh, services that wouldn't have happened if we had just been a public sector organization 
that um, provided services to the government. So, so Peter, um, for many commercially minded organisations, it can be difficult to support sufficient research and development, particularly long term research. Um, how is this dealt with at MedService? Well, the budget for research was, is much smaller, uh, given the circumstances of the, the, country, the, the company. However, uh, one of the uh, tactics that um, we used uh, very successfully was doing pioneering work uh, with other uh, companies in the private sector. So I don't think it's a secret, but the likes of uh, companies like Farika that were taken over by Vasala, we used some of their um, icing um, uh, technology to apply to um, runways uh, and um, you know, applied them uh, throughout New Zealand. That's been a huge success. And we applied them not only for icing, but uh, because they could pick up particulate matter, the uh, pooling of water on runways as well. So that's just an example where we work closely with a, a private company to develop something that um, hadn't been thought of before. So a lot of our innovation and research is developed in hand in hand with other companies, but it's applied research and uh, how that can uh, help create uh, new products and services. Again, back to ultimately what uh, MedService was about, which is uh, protecting um, uh, people from uh, adverse weather. Um, I'm very interested in what you've been saying about about the joint projects. And I suppose the, the spectrum is uh, cooperation, engagement, and even partnership. And that involves potentially, you know, the whole public, private and academic sectors who are interested in taking part. So I'm, I'm interested in your view about <clears throat> the extent to which you see partnerships between the sectors and the organisations there as an important part of making the Met Service successful? Yeah, let, let, let me um, just start off with uh, the sectors first of all. So, you know, sometimes we look too blandly at what meteorology, meteorology is. It's now striated into many uh, different um, expert areas. And you've got a lot of uh, small private companies uh, that have been backed by venture capitalists that are wor working on one particular part of uh, the meteorological uh, spectrum. So, for example, it may be something to do with uh, icing an aircraft, or it may be something to do with um, detecting um, uh, ice at certain levels. It could be to do with in oceanography. There's a whole spectrum now where meteorology is um, is uh, divided into. Uh, so um, there's lots of opportunities out there for small companies to throw a lot of money at particular things because they're supported by venture capitalists with the idea that um, if they're successful or partway successful, they'll be bought by a larger company and those um, investors will get their money back. A lot of... Um, the medium-sized uh, companies, small to medium-sized companies like ourselves, just can't do that. They don't have the resources or didn't have the resources uh, to throw into one particular small area of uh, the meteorological spectrum. So, um, you know, it's important that we recognize that. And as I said before, it, it allows us then to pick and choose who we should be working with. 
and uh, determine from that. The other side is that we made great um, uh, strides in developing our interaction with um, academia uh, as well and with industry bodies. So there, there's th those elements, the meteorological societies, the universities, and then also um, the opportunities to work overseas and, and some of the uh, great programs, uh, as you'll know about with the uh, World Bank and the WMO and sitting on technical committees uh, and those and helping drive through uh, some advances in uh, determining what path uh, meteorology should take. So one one area that you, you didn't mention is working with gov other government departments. So transport, for example, would be one. Do, do you see that as a as a sort of bespoke service on a contract with uh, with say the the transport ministry, or or is that uh, more of a partnership model in terms of the relationship? The uh, New Zealand uh, Transport Agency here who are responsible for our main road networks. We've done a lot of work with them on um, uh, determining icing on all the major roads in New Zealand. And so we've got a map of where it's icing. And what that means is that the um, de-icing material that they put down can be applied just in certain spots rather than across the whole road. Um, we uh, have put up with them areas that um, and signals that um, icing is um, probably likely in certain parts of the of the network so motorists and their smart highways uh, get advanced warning of this so the thing is that that has evolved over time so we got to know we sent bespoke we sold them bespoke uh, services but that's not good enough now um you have to think to the future how transport is progressing um what else is happening around the world can you apply some of that to new zealand can you introduce that new technology so you grow with them and, and bring them along um, on that uh, uh, journey of advancement? And again, that's down to customer relationships. And a lot of public sector organisations just don't have those skills. So, so, Peter, given your experience leading this probably unique structure for a National Weather Service, is it, is it one that you think could have advantages for other countries? And, and if so, how would you characterise those advantages? There may be elements of it, large or small, that can work for other countries. But the idea that you could just take up the model and apply it somewhere else, I think, is very naive because uh, there are many other um, circumstances that you really um, can't cover um, because of the nuances of, of uh, the way the different cultures in different countries. So, um, as I say, and you can hear it from me, I'm very reluctant to, to um, pass it on as, as, as something that would work anywhere else. The, the thing that you have to be um, aware of is exploitation. So in a lot of uh, countries where um, national meteorological organizations don't have that commercial experience, um, there are um, organizations that um, can take advantage of that and, and when I say take, take advantage I'm not saying that it's done in an underhand way I'm not saying that it's illegal and I'm, I'm just saying that you know the, the commercial uh, sector has to make a buck and in, in many cases uh, working with um, national 
meteorological organizations that don't have that experience, then any deals that they do can be to the a greater advantage to the commercial sector than to the public organization. So they just have to be careful around that. So Peter, <clears throat> finally, perhaps uh, as you leave the immediate meteorological domain uh, to go to uh, pastures afresh, um, what are your reflections on how the global weather enterprise could advance and grow in the future? Yeah, so uh, you know, I'm going back to my first uh, love in, in biology and biochemistry to head up the COVID fight here in New Zealand with a company called ESR, which uh, looks after uh, five areas in New Zealand, communicative diseases, forensics, water quality, food quality, and uh, believe it or not, radiation. So all the work that you see, or a lot of the work that you see uh, around COVID in New Zealand, ESR, my company, which is the Environmental Science and Research Institute, uh, covers. And um, what has uh, surprised me again is when I was in the biotech community and the science uh, community, the biological community, there's a real um, uh, camaraderie there. And I didn't think that could be replicated anywhere until uh, uh, you know, I realized that the meteorological community was just the same. And it's a very tight bond uh, uh, between uh, those that are involved in that. And that really um, allows there to be something special that can be uh, developed from that. So in my time in uh, that community, um, what I was advocating for with others, and, and you guys were part of this, was that uh, the National Med Services look, should look beyond their, their own domain and build trust with the commercial sector because that's the way the world was going. And the commercial sector as well had to have respect for the uh, public sector and um, determine how they could work together. And then, you know, that's overmessed with, um, uh, well, what is meteorology? Is it, is it to do with hydrology? Is it to do oceanography? So there's many different aspects of that. And then the academic side as well. So where does academia uh, fit into this? So the ideas of the global weather enterprise is something that's very, very exciting because you find where you get an overlap of technologies and science that are closely related, but uh, are their own disciplines. Then you, you get that sparky interface where uh, fantastic new ideas appear. And um, that's where I see the meteorological um, community going. And it's very, very important that um, that is uh, wholly grasped and understood by those that are part of it. I also feel that um, meteorological organizations and especially the national ones um, should realize that um, not everything uh, that is meteorological they should be doing because again uh, the commercial sector is striving ahead in, in those areas. And it's important that they're aware of that and they have better resources to do it. So it's how can they, they partner with them? Well, uh, Peter, thank you so much for taking part in this conversation. It's been fascinating and we really wish you all the best in your fantastic new job. Thank you very much, Alan. Thanks, Peter. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Right, now it's time for Wow That's Interesting. Wow! So, Alan, what have you got for Wow That's Interesting for this episode? 
One area of meteorological observations frequently delivered by the private sector is lightning detection. Nowadays, there are various apps available to enable the public and other organisations to see in real time the location of current and recent lightning flashes in their vicinity or indeed anywhere else around the world. Do you have any examples of these apps and how they might be applied in practice? One example, there are others, is Lightning Alarm, which is a free app for smartphones. Such real-time information can save lives. In terms of applications, one area with great potential is in outdoor sports. Let's take golf, which is a subject close to my heart. This is an area where a lot of money is involved and a golf course can be a very dangerous place if lightning strikes. What happens when there's lightning in the vicinity? At my local golf club, which I think is fairly typical, the course manager is required to signal via a very loud horn that players must leave the course as quickly as possible if there is a danger of a lightning strike. So does a course manager know when there's a danger of a lightning strike? Until relatively recently, the course manager used visual observations to scan the skies to assess the likelihood of imminent lightning strikes. The app is a much better tool for this purpose. Lightning Alarm, for example, claims to forecast thunderstorm movements and intensity up to two hours ahead and sends out alert messages up to 15 minutes before lightning is expected at a location. The service claims to use high-quality weather data combined with high-resolution lightning data to accurately predict when lightning will occur. It's a shame this didn't seem to work or be heeded at a recent soccer match in Switzerland where 14 teenagers were hospitalised after a lightning strike during a game. Whether the match should have been cancelled is currently being investigated by the public prosecutor. Would it have been possible for the lightning to have been undetected? One issue is that there are two types of lightning strike, cloud to ground and cloud to cloud, and detecting the location of both types of strike is no easy matter. A single ground-based lightning network uses at least three antennas, preferably many more, to locate strikes with an acceptable margin of error. This often leads to the rejection of cloud-to-cloud lightning, and so ground-based networks have a tendency to underestimate the number of flashes. Systems that use multiple locations and time-of-flight detection methods must have a central device to collect strike and timing data to calculate location. In addition, each detection station must have a precision timing source that is used in the calculation. There are several companies that operate such ground-based lightning networks. For example, Earth Networks says that it has over 1,800 sensors covering over 100 countries around the world. A problem for space-based lightning networks based on optical detection is that their information can often be several minutes old by the time it is widely available, to a degree limiting its use for real-time applications. Lightning data can also assist very short-range numerical weather prediction because it is indicative of the existence of severe local storms. Sometimes cloud-to-cloud strikes are an early indicator of storm development. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. David and I will be back next month, and in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email support at gweforum.org.